Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. <laughs> Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And I'm sure you saw the story last week, John, of Sho Taguchi, the Japanese man who accidentally was wired the equivalent of 360,000 U.S. dollars in COVID relief money intended to be spread across 463 low-income households. And instead of returning the money... He blew almost all of it gambling online. He was playing with house money. Uh, The problem was it came from someone else's house. John, (laughs) if you woke up one day and found an extra 360 grand in your bank account, how much do you estimate you'd deposit on online gambling sites? And uh, and might a spare $360,000 be enough to get you to bump up your standard sports bet size from $5 to $10? Oh, hey, hey, I, I, bet, <laughs> I bet 10 bucks on some games. I mean, it's oh, been a while. Okay. It's All been right. a while, but I have done it. All right. Um, this reminds me, years ago, I was checking out of a supermarket self-service lane. You know, I saw 40 bucks dangling from the machine. So clearly someone had requested that money as part of checking out, then got distracted by their cell phone or who knows what, and walked away without their money. So after I finished my order, I went to the customer service desk and I said, uh, I see someone just ahead of me forgot to take the $40. So here it is in case they call and ask about it. You know, gal behind the counter, incredulous. Why didn't you just keep it to yourself? <laughs> me, incredulous. Um, because it's not mine. So I think that answers your query. Uh, The one thing to add is that it would be most impressive not to take advantage because it's the right thing to do. Now, in the case of an accidental bank deposit, a significant portion of my reasoning would also be these days, everything gets tracked. So if I did use any of the money, I could be in some legal trouble. So I wouldn't take this money either. But in this case, fear of criminal liability would be in the mix too. Well, you are a good Samaritan, John Brennan. Uh, I I had a somewhat similar incident uh, when we were on vacation at Disney World just a a few weeks ago. But I don't know that if I can call myself a total good Samaritan. First of all, it was only five bucks. There was a five dollar bill sitting right on the ground next to the ping pong table that my son and I were playing on. Hmm. Thought sitting there, there was like literally no one around to ask, was this yours or whatever? But my son was there. So you have to set a good example in that case. So, so what I did there was, uh, you know, the uh, we were by this was a ping pong table by the pool. So there was the, you know, the pool bar right there. And so I took the five dollars and brought it over to the bartender uh, and said, if anyone is comes around looking for five bucks, uh, here it is. And if not, uh, I guess uh, you guys can keep it as a tip. So but again. If my son wasn't there, is there a chance I pocket the five bucks? I can't I can't say for sure. Um, but, you know, it's funny with this story. I can turn just about any negative gambling story into an argument in favor of regulation. Um, you know, online gaming is not legal in Japan. So mm. he had to have been using an unregulated site. And with regulation, it wouldn't be too difficult for a local government and regulator to recover the money. Uh, just just feel like I got to point that out. Um, but Otherwise, this story is not a ringing endorsement of online gambling in general, and it would seem Mr. Taguchi has not just a gambling problem to blow through that much money that quickly, but also a morality problem that needs some work. Um, 
look, I, I love gambling with house money as much as the next guy, you know, <laughs> when it's the site giving me the money, you know, which they do sometimes. Here's $20 in free casino credits. Great. Let's spend that and have some fun. When it's the government giving me money accidentally, I don't know. I'd like to think my first instinct wouldn't be, I'm going to deposit this on an online gambling site and let her rip. Uh, but uh, maybe that's just me. And apparently that's you also. Yeah, I think the real outrage here is you, you taught your son, you're not calling it table tennis. I'm really, that's why I'm outraged. <laughs> Sorry, that's that's an, that's offensive to you to say ping pong? <laughs> well, apparently the, the marketing people have told me so. Yeah. Okay, all right. I'll work on that. All right. Thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 194 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 193 episodes, they're all available on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. We will gladly accept your accidental five-star ratings, and we have no intention of returning them. Yeah, actually, I agree with that. So we're, <laughs> okay, we're in good. sync again. Um, coming up a little later on the show, we're going to be joined by BetMGM Vice President of Gaming, Matt Sunderland. To get his thoughts on the state of online casino gaming in the U.S., we'll ask Matt about BetMGM's big success in Michigan, which are the most popular iCasino games, and more. But first, it's been a reasonably busy pre-holiday weekend week in the world of gambling. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. We start this week with a major arrest in the sports betting world. Uh, And full disclosure, right off the bat, the person arrested is someone I've known for about 17 years. He used to write for me, and we were very friendly until falling out of touch several years ago. That person is Corey Zeidman, a professional poker player, originally from Long Island, but he's lived in Florida for as long as I've known him. He's 61 years old. He won a World Series of Poker bracelet in 2012. On Wednesday, a federal indictment was unsealed, charging Zeidman and other unnamed co-conspirators with fraud and money laundering from 2004 to 2020 for running an operation that claimed to give away winning sports betting tips based on inside information, but instead was allegedly a scam, similar to, but not exactly the same as, various touts who guarantee customers winning picks. According to the indictment, Zeidman and his co-conspirators received more than $25 million in interstate wire transfers and private commercial carriers from people who were led to believe Zeidman had information that made his picks near locks. Ricky J. Patel, Homeland Security Investigations New York acting special agent in charge, said in a release, as alleged, Zeidman preyed on individuals who were led to believe he had inside information that would lead them to easy money. In reality, he was selling nothing but lies and misinformation bilking millions from victims along the way, leaving their lives in financial ruin and their bank accounts empty. Added U.S. Attorney Breon Peace, Zeidman persuaded customers to, quote, drain their retirement accounts to invest in his bogus sports betting group. Also, he could spend it on international vacations, a multi-million dollar residence, and poker tournaments. John, uh, your reaction to this news, and do you think the whole touting industry should be worried, or does this seem like a unique alleged scam? Yeah, I mean, if the story is about bilking teenagers or those with cognitive disabilities or early stages of dementia, I'd be a thousand percent outraged and I'd say throw away the key. To be honest, this sounds like a bunch of greedy people happy to take advantage of alleged match fixing to Mm. feather their own nests. You know, fools and their money really are soon parted. And if it wasn't Zeidman, then someone else would have fleeced these sheep. Is that too harsh, Eric? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think uh, that that was one of the thoughts that crossed my mind on this is that the, the victims aren't totally blameless in the sense that 
come on, be less gullible. And I, I wondered if that was an insensitive attitude, but uh, apparently <laughs> we, we both had the same thought. I, I don't have total sympathy, at least, for someone who would fall for this. Yeah, this is the Bernie Madoff thing, right? Yeah. Um, this is uh, the Enron employees who put all of their savings into Enron stock. Look, they got screwed. Uh, there were a lot of criminals at the top of that company, but, you know, don't whatever where you eat and all that. So, um, but now as far as touts go, they're full of crap anyway. So now if former gamble on guest Jeopardy James offered to sell me his picks, well, he's a professional sports better who resides in Las Vegas, but it's funny. The few gamblers who actually make a living at it, like James, they're not so generous with that info for various reasons. Yeah, that's, that's true. If someone is selling their picks, they rarely are actually winning betters. (laughs) Um, Jeff Edelstein wrote about this, uh, this news for sports handle, and he got some quotes from our friend, uh, the gaming attorney, Dan Wallach, who said he thinks handicappers and touts should be regulated just like sports books are. I'm not sure what that would look like, but certainly regulation would flip the touting business on its head. If you had to basically show receipts for all your picks, all your wins and losses and reveal the methodology. Um, You know, in the, in the classic touting example, the methodology is just, okay, I have 16 customers to whom I'm giving free picks. I give eight of them one side of a game and eight Mm -hmm. of them the other, Mm -hmm. the eight who win. I give four of them one side of the next game for the other, the four who win, I give two of them one side of the next Mm -hmm. game and two of them the other. And now I have two people out of the 16 I started with, who just got three consecutive winning picks for me and they think I'm a sports betting savant and I have their business now, at least for a little while. That's the scam. And I don't think that that approach would hold up very well under the eye of regulators. Um, I I don't, you know, again, I'm not sure quite what regulating touts and handicappers looks like, but I I think it's pretty bad for the touts. But, you know, this alleged Zeidman scam is a little different than that. He was using fake names and, and claiming to have inside information it seemed like an an extra level of dishonesty. Uh, And then there's money laundering on top of it. Something that uh, I never understood before watching Breaking Bad, but uh, thank you, Saul Goodman, for explaining (laughs) money laundering to me. Um, So, you know, I'm not sure if standard touts doing the pay me and I'll give you winners bit need to be shaking in their boots just yet. It's hard to say if this is going to have far reaching implications or not. It it just doesn't make any sense. Like if you, if you can make, and we know some professional gamblers ourselves, um, if they're that good, and some of them are, if they give their picks or sell their picks to a lot of people, they can actually move a line, or yeah. they can they can lead to you know you being limited severely in a lot of American companies, and so they're not going to give away their secrets, nor should they. So it, you know, I mean. As a Mets fan, I was stuck with the uh, Wilpons and the Bernie Madoff scam. Like, yep. like, oh, they got scammed? Really? I mean, you're guaranteed 12% return every year for life, no matter what. Really? I mean, then you get burned and then you don't spend money on players and it's my fault. I mean, I wasn't that dumb. The owner was. But right. thankfully, they are long gone in the rearview mirror. Yeah. Um, so I, I do feel like I should just uh, explain a little bit more about how how I know Corey Zeidman. Mm-hmm. Um He wasn't uh, a great writer per se, um, but he was a good columnist, which is what he wrote for me, monthly poker columns. He was a good columnist because he was highly opinionated and willing to Mm -hmm. take strong positions. Um, But I suppose I now have to question where he was coming from sometimes and how honest he was. He played this very famous hand at the 2005 World Series of Poker. It was 
at the featured table on TV, got shown on ESPN. Mm-hmm. He, he happened to make a straight flush against Jennifer Harmon's full house. One of those one in a million wow. situations. Wow. And on TV, it looked like he slow rolled her, meaning he didn't turn his cards over quickly enough when he had the best possible hand, very unsportsmanlike, kind of the, the poker version of an extremely slow home run trot mm-hmm. to, to twist that the knife. <laughs> right, that sort of thing. Yeah. And he insisted in columns multiple times and everywhere else that they edited it to make it look like a slow roll, mm-hmm. but really it wasn't. And, and I took him at his word, and now I kind of have to question that, among other things that he wrote. Um, Anyway, my experience with Corey was that he seemed like a good guy. We got along well. Uh, he and his wife even sent a baby gift when my daughter was born, perhaps with ill-gotten gains, as it turns out. Um, but, uh, but we got along great until 2016, when I was no longer editing a poker magazine. We weren't working together. And we discovered that we were very much on opposite sides of the political fence, which was kind of a big deal in 2016. And uh, <laughs> I have no, no idea Ill- what you mean there. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> there was no ill will between us, really. Yeah. But we just stopped interacting. I, I muted his social media posts, et cetera. So that, that was the last time I talked to him, 2016. So, you know, I have kind of mixed feelings about him as a person. But needless yeah. to say, if the allegations are true, as much as you're absolutely right that his victims should be charged with utter stupidity here this still is a, a serious crime and, and there should be a stiff price to pay yeah i mean having dealt with north north jersey politics for so long i mean the number of people i know and it's worse than this is i'm talking about people have gone to prison is in the dozens and it's mm. like you know i've talked to people in my family they're like wait you know someone's gone to prison like they don't know anyone <laughs> has ever gone to prison i'm like oh i i dealt with these guys for years are you kidding me you know and yeah. it's it's weird but i mean it, it happens and uh it is what it is. So, uh, and obviously, uh, innocent will prove guilty and everything else. Here. Right. Yes. Important to spell that out. All right. Uh, moving on to our second story. There haven't been too many new sports book operators making waves in the last couple of years. Most of the big names arrived in 2018 and 2019 and have remained the big names. But this week, we have noteworthy news surrounding two brands intending to get into sports betting. One of them is Fanatics, the massive sportswear company owned by Michael Rubin, who happens to be one of the owners of the Philadelphia 76ers and the New Jersey Devils. A few days ago, Fanatics filed an application to trademark Bet Fanatics, its intended sports betting brand. Fanatics has a valuation of $27 billion, and Rubin has said that he expects Bet Fanatics to become the biggest brand in U.S. sports betting in the next 10 years. There is no word on a timeline for when Bet Fanatics might launch in its first state. Meanwhile, Underdog Fantasy, which has been building in popularity the last couple of years with its real money season long fantasy contest, has now announced its intention to get into the sportsbook game, stating in a news release that, quote, Underdog will be launching an innovative sportsbook in multiple markets over the coming months. That word innovative is notable as Every vague statement coming from the company has talked about the sports book not just looking the same as all the others. John, thoughts on these potential new additions? And is it too late for a new sports book to come along and rise to the top? Or does Fanatics have the brand and the money to eventually push FanDuel and DraftKings aside? Yeah, I mean, if anyone does, it would be Fanatics, but FanDuel and DraftKings have built in market shares beyond belief. I mean, Fanatics, no doubt, has a strong list of customers too. But I'd, I'd bet dollars to donuts. I don't even know what that means, but that's the phrase. <laughs> um, that there's a strong overlap between their list and the ones of the DFS companies too, right? So yeah. the fan of Fanatics, you know, is thinking about it. Why would he bother switching to this new sports book? 
you know, I once spent about 90 minutes interviewing David Blitzer. He's another one of these devil 76ers uh, crossover right. owners. And like Ruben and Josh Harris, another one. These guys are stupid brilliant, if I can coin a term. Or to be clearer, they are freaking brilliant. Right. So maybe uh, as far as underdog goes, there's no need to fear. Fellas and maybe gals, you have exactly the right name for your sports betting company. <laughs> I mean, you know, the margins on sports betting are so small. The lavishness of the promotions by the big boys are so large, too large to be sustainable. In fact, a lot of investors will tell you yeah. uh, that this one seems even less likely to win than that Kentucky Derby horse somehow did. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'll start with Bet Fanatics because I, I find that one a fascinating experiment on numerous levels, much like Barstool, which has done well, but not quite mm. challenged for the top spot yeah. in any state. They have a brand name and a built-in following and presumably a massive mailing list. And yeah. I guess they can reach some customers who haven't necessarily tried sports betting yet, who are just into the apparel side of things. Although you're probably also right to note that a lot of the guys on their list, guys and gals on their list, I should say, uh, already do have accounts with a DraftKings or a FanDuel. But Part of why it's also fascinating is that they didn't get into New York despite trying. And one wonders if that will limit the ceiling of bet fanatics or if it'll prove a good thing for their bottom line, since the margins in New York are so thin due to the tax rate. They're definitely one to watch. But uh, as we've learned with Fox bet, a name brand isn't enough. It takes a lot of different factors and a lot of smart moves to compete with DraftKings, FanDuel, MGM, Caesars, etc. Underdog, meanwhile, appears to have more modest goals. Uh, they seem to just want a seat at the table. But I'll say this, in the fantasy world, the DFS world, they've come a long way in a short time. They took mm -hmm. a different route than DraftKings and FanDuel. They found this sort of midpoint between standard season-long fantasy and the strategy and excitement of DFS. And there seems to be an audience for it. So it would appear there are some smart, creative minds there. You know, when most sports books say we're going to be innovative and different, you don't believe them. It's just talk with underdog. It's plausible that, that they might figure out a way to stand out. Yeah, it's that is intriguing to me. I mean, uh, it's just it's just tough. I mean, yeah, you know, I can I remember going back to the early days in 2018 in New Jersey, the regulators uh, in the state were astounded by the presentations and the uh, efforts of DraftKings and FanDuel compared to the standard casinos, let's say, right? And the European books and everything that were coming in. It was like a huge difference. I mean, like these guys have it all figured out. They know exactly what they want to do. They've got the technology. They've got it set. They're early. Like everything kind of blew the regulators away. Like, wow, these guys play for keeps. And a couple of regulars that I know, they're not even DFS players at all. They're not gamblers anyway, but right. they're just like, they, they didn't know much about it. They heard the names. That's all. They, see the, they saw the annoying commercials, you know, six, five, six years ago. And, uh, but they're just like, oh, okay, you guys, you came in here, you, you've got everything. And then, you know, they meet a casino operator or one of the European books. And it's like, yeah, okay, you guys kind of got it, but not that great. And so, uh, you know, that's again, FanDuel's and DraftKings spend way too much money and, you know, their their bottom line is questionable, but their skill set and their market share and ability to kind of crowd out other operators is remarkable. But, yeah, I, I don't I don't rule fanatics out and uh, I'm interested in what you're saying about underdog. And you're right about if they're if they're not shooting for the moon, then maybe they can, like you say, get a seat at the table. Right. Okay. A live dog, we will call them uh, yeah, okay. for now, I suppose. Okay. Uh, so our final story. Uh, last week, we reported on Kansas legalizing sports betting and Missouri failing to. This week, we have news on the legalization front from Minnesota. 
And unfortunately, Minnesota has gone the way of Missouri for now. Two weeks ago, on May 12th, the Minnesota House passed a bill that would have put sports betting in the hands of the state's 11 tribes. A few days later, a Senate committee amended the bill, changing how tax revenue would be allocated and allowing two racetracks to offer sports betting in addition to the tribes. There would have been retail and mobile wagering and a 10% tax rate, but the House and the Senate couldn't get on the same page about whether the tribes would have exclusivity, so the session ended with nothing accomplished. Sports betting will not be coming to Minnesota this year. John, we've talked about this sort of thing with numerous states over the years, you know, different bills in some states that aren't aligned, tribal interests and state interests being tough to sort through. Some of those states where tribes play a big role have gotten it done, such as Connecticut, while others like California haven't yet. Any sense how optimistic Minnesotans should be for next year? And do you see anything unique about this situation, or is this basically just another state getting tripped up by the same old conflicts? Yeah, I mean, Connecticut just has two large tribes and really no competition in the gambling front. So that one is simpler. California has 60, 70 tribes, and right. and most states have somewhere in between two and 70. <laughs> right. But uh, I'd like to enter into the official record of my remarks of last week, noting that if school kids want to get a hands-on lesson in inertia, just bust them over to the state house. You'll <laughs> see it in all its glory, kids. Over there, do you see those two well-dressed men talking intently? One of them is a lobbyist for the horsemen. The other is a key leader in the state Senate. Hey, they both look happy. I wonder why. <laughs> now, best case scenario, the horsemen would have gotten this amended bill passed. Worst case, they live to fight another day, or in this case, another year. Lather, rinse, and repeat. I've seen it happen firsthand. That's just how it works. And, and I'm not uh, knocking the horsemen versus the tribes in Minnesota, whatever. I mean, the, everybody's doing the same thing. You're, right. you're glad handing and whatever, uh, having intent discussions with your uh, your friendly little neighborhood uh, elected official. And once something is going to happen, that's going to go one way only and the other is going to lose out. You just all you need to do is get somebody to add an amendment to come up the works. That's what happened here. Yeah. So have you uh, done any work on your uh, Schoolhouse Rock song about inertia (laughs) and and made any progress on that? Got a little tune in your head yet? I got to get going on that. All right. I find myself generally optimistic about these states that get things moving but fall short. Um, I said last week that I'm fairly confident Missouri will get something done in 2023. Minnesota, I'm not as confident about 2023, but still, it should help that bills have been introduced, considered, debated, and legislators know what the remaining hurdles are as they go into next year. But um you know, the tribal situation is rarely easy to resolve, certainly, as, as you said, the more tribes, the messier it can be. We are seeing more and more states figuring it out. One key note is that Minnesota is now sort of surrounded by jurisdictions with legal sports betting. Uh, Wisconsin and South Dakota, they're retail only, uh, but they do have it. Uh, Iowa to the south has everything. Canada to the north also. North Dakota has two retail books that operate in a gray area of the law. So I said sort of surrounded. It's not quite like Missouri, where there's Mm -hmm. mobile betting across every state border. But I'd say there is some degree of pressure on Minnesota legislators to get it done. I've been to Minnesota. They're they're big on Minnesota nice. And it's funny, if you go around the Midwest as long as I have, I've probably spent a year of my life there. Um, The other states, they hate Minnesota nice. Now, remember, there's Indiana nice, too, is another theme. And uh, but there's some vibe that Minnesota people are so nice that the other uh, neighbors, they feel like it's not real. It's kind of phony. It's uh, it's kind of a weird it's like whispered, though, because, you know, they're nice out in the Midwest. So 
really say it out loud so much, but uh, it's an interesting vibe. And I think that probably happens in a state house. They're like, oh, we don't want to bother anybody. You know, you're a horseman. We don't want to tick you off. Everybody should get a chance. Wait, uh, sorry, uh, tribe, tribal people. Yeah, we want to make you happy, too. And nothing gets done. I think it, there, we need a debate. Uh, as to which is the nicest state, Minnesota versus Indiana, who's nicer? I, I want to find out who wins that. I actually go with Indiana. My wife's a Hoosier, so I'm ah, okay. uh, biased. But you are biased. Yeah. I told the story. I stayed at the Jets uh, hotel in the Jets Colts uh, AFC Championship game like a dozen years ago, and on the third floor, the elevator stopped, and a woman gets in, and then she hits the button for two, like the atrium or whatever, and. Mm. Us New Yorkers types were like, really? I mean, it's one flight. I mean, there's like 12 people in the elevator. She goes out of her way to say to us, I'm so sorry. I really hurt my ankle yesterday and I can't walk downstairs. I hate to bother you. Now, by the time she finished her little message, the, the floor had stopped. You know, the elevator had stopped, rather, and she got off on the second floor. But I was like, that's pretty nice. I mean, you know, right. yeah, it was a little bit like eye roll, maybe, but you know, be forgotten in 10 seconds. But she went out of her way to let us know. She apologized for st- for us stopping on the third floor and the second floor. Yeah. Wow. Th- certainly they beat uh, our, our states. Nobody ever talks about New Jersey <laughs> no, nice. No, they don't. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. John and I often talk on the podcast about how when state-by-state sports betting expansion is nearly complete, the next big frontier will be online casino expansion. Joining us now is a gentleman on the front lines of the effort to attract online casino customers. He is the vice president of gaming at BetMGM, Matt Sunderland. Uh, BetMGM was actually just named Casino Operator of the Year in April at the EGR North America Awards 2022. So congratulations on that, Matt, and welcome to Gamble On. Thanks, John and Eric. You stole my thunder there. I was just going to talk about that award, but <laughs> <laughs> you're still you're still welcome so, to want to want to want to oh, tell us a, a bit about uh, uh, what it was like to win that. Uh, it was so good that we're you know super humble to win that award. I think it's um, it's the result of a lot of hard work from a lot of people. So um, for those of you that don't know that the the award criteria was uh, Casino Operator of the Year was based on. Um, uh, one online casino operator's ability to dominate the sector through uh, global reach and quality of their product, and I think um, you know we've um, we, we've certainly proved that in North America, and uh, just super proud of the casino team and BetMGM, and and obviously the wider team in in our business. Just a fantastic achievement. Well, that was uh, Thank very... you for leading with it. <laughs> sure. That was a uh, very uh, politically correct of you to spread the uh, congratulations around instead of just, you, know, uh, you could no, have just no, said no. it was all me, but, you know. No, 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 <laughs> that, that, that's all true. I, I, I can do, I can do my job without, um, without the, without the, the people who are backing me in BetMGM, that's 100% sure. Very cool. Um, so as I noted uh, in, in setting things up here, uh, iCasino expansion is moving much more slowly than sports betting expansion. And whereas BetMGM Sportsbook is available in 16 jurisdictions, BetMGM Casino is only in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Michigan for now. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to specifically ask you about Michigan, because whereas BetMGM is near the top of the pack in the other states, 
in Michigan, the, the iCasino product has been number one by a sizable margin from the start. What is making Michigan different from the other states for, for BetMGM? And, and any guess why the whole online casino industry is so strong in that state? Um, I think either Michigan's an interesting one. And I, I, I look back through our performance record. You know, we launched... Um, we launched in Michigan uh, on the on the 22nd. It was a Friday, actually, the 22nd of Jan. Um, and, you know, the numbers were coming in hourly. I remember tracking it. We did over a million dollars of gross gaming revenue in, in that first day. Um, and we all thought the numbers were wrong. Uh, you know, we thought our business intelligence piece w- w- was broken. Um, and it, it, it sort of went gangbusters after that. And... I think there's a number of pieces as to why, obviously, you know, I, I'm biased, obviously, but I think we've got the best casino in state in, in, in MGM Grand in, in Detroit. Um, we really lent into uh, that omni-channel piece and, and those people on property uh, in that state really helped us, you know, develop an omni-channel marketing piece that was linked to property and back towards online. I think... You know, I was there in the early days of, of, of Jersey launch, and it was different this time. We launched sports poker and casino on the same day, and that's the first state we'd ever done that. We also put a lot of scope into our pre-registration piece. So even before, you know, the state opened up, we'd signed up um, thousands of customers to uh, our welcome offer uh, through advertising and really pushing via property. So it was... It was very different. I think, you know, you probably look at the, the, the pent up times from COVID, uh, you know, building momentum in that period as well. And certainly our customers that I've spoken to, you know, since launch and, and, and customers on property in Michigan, there was just a pent up demand for, you know, online casino. A, a lot of people were playing social casino products and they wanted the real thing. And I think, you know, this, the, the stars aligned at the end of the day and just this thing just turned into a rocket ship. It's not just us. Obviously, there's, there's, there's our competitors in market. But, um, yeah, I, I think it's a fantastic state. A lot of feedback. We, we very early on focused on, um, and from feedback from customers, focused on pushing content that was known from land-based that we had in our online store. So, you know, IGT content like G- uh, Cleopatra, um, Williams content via SG like 88 Fortune. So known quantum games uh, before we started kind of, um, you know, uh, upselling o- online only content. So really get that, that initial customer base confident in terms of games they're playing. They're in the MGM universe, if you like, or ecosystem uh, and playing games that they know and love and, and are trusted. Yeah, Matt, let's go back to 2013. Uh, three mm. things happened in the U.S. and the online gambling world. One, Nevada launched online poker, although the numbers there are very small. Uh, Delaware launched online casino, but uh, it's lottery run. There's no competition. And it's kind of a small amenity to a state where the residents have been known to like to gamble for many decades. Uh, but really, New Jersey is kind of the, you know, the birth of the era of that year. And I'm just curious because now you mentioned the early days. So I don't recall if BetMGM was on, uh, you know, right on the cutting edge there. 
or which operators were. And then also, uh, how smoothly did it go? I remember DGE, the regulators in New Jersey, were very nervous about geolocation and uh, running afoul of federal law and such. So they were knocking out a lot of customers, for instance, that even though they they probably didn't have to, and they eventually eased the brakes there. But you know, how did the rollout go in general in New Jersey, given that it was a new product? I look, I mean, I, it's tough for me. I wasn't there in 2013. That was mm. way before my time. I kind of hit, I hit Atlantic City in 2017, just as we were, um, you know, pre-play uh, MGM. We were rolling out. The brand was, was called then way before Bet MGM, and it was a, mm. a casino and poker brand. What what I do know is I was working very heavily with that team, and that was before the joint venture hit between Entain and MGM, which became Bet MGM. Uh, I was I was a consultant to um, to uh, GVC as it was called then, Prientain and MGM. Um, it, it was a it was a different time, you know. Borgata was um, Borgata was MGM's biggest gaming brand in Jersey. Uh, when they launched that brand in November two thousand thirteen through fourteen, uh, they had retained as we have now, and we haven't lost a single one of them. A really strong VIP following, um, who are loyal to that brand, love the property, obviously translated across the online brand, um, uh, and uh, that's one of the things I'm, pr- I'm most proud about in terms of our team. We haven't lost a single one of those players um, through churn or to another operator. They've remained true to that brand whilst we've, you know, we have built up a Vet MGM product that, that started as Play MGM in in July 2017, but we've We've worked hard. I think we've got, uh, and look, there's two things. One, one thing that's helped us a lot is we do have three brands in New Jersey, which means we, you know, we cross sell to customers who are about to lapse out potentially of one brand to another with a with a different offer. It, it, it certainly helps. It also gives us the benefit of having a network, and by that I mean, you know, we have we have built our own jackpot network in actually every state but we started in jersey with a with about 40 um 40 different slot titles and we built up the biggest um online uh slot jackpot in jersey uh, one of the big winners was a lady called dory in i think august last year she won about 3.2 million dollars and that sort of piece between the three brands and being able to differentiate between the three brands has has really served as well as uh, uh, alongside, you know, we're constantly with our own slot studio, uh, well, slots and table studio, we're building branded games. Uh, You know, the first branded MGM game we launched in April uh, 2020, it was called MGM Grand Millions, um, and it just went gangbusters. Uh, And so we started building more and then, we, we increased our output in terms of external games and started working with third-party vendors who also built external games because, you know, we had decent market share and, we, and distribution and wanted to push them. So it's um, there's no silver bullet, I don't think, with these things. We've, we've leaned into property in terms of Borgata. We've done a ton of omni-marketing. We've we followed our strategy of jackpots, you know, player wins, exclusive content, great player engagement tools that we've got on site. Um, and, you know, we keep growing and keep going and keep innovating and keep, keep trying to delight our customers. That, that's our aim at the, end, at the end of the day. 
Yeah, I, I'm really intrigued by what I perceive as at least as the the difference between the sports betting industry and online casino. Um, you're mentioning 2017 New Jersey. I mean, the numbers there are minuscule compared to what they are in 2022. I mean, there was a, it took several years to really get it going on a big scale, and in the last few years, it just exploded. Uh, whereas, right, Michigan was kind of born that way, and Pennsylvania ramped yeah. up pretty quickly. But I mean, sports betting it didn't start till 2018 in New Jersey and other states. But it seemed like if if you if it took you three to six months to get in, I don't know if you're too late. It may turn out to be too late, but, you know, the market matured in like a month. And it seems like I'm like a casino it matured in five or six years. So, you know, I'm trying to get a sense. And there's also fewer players, of course, and I like casino. So, you know, what's the competitive marketplace like? Is it kind of cutthroat or, or you each have your own you know, comfortable base of customers? There's a lot of uh, attempt to, you know, get customers away from the others or are you just going more for new customers? You know, what's the marketplace like? Look, I, I think it's different. You know, 2013 is very different from 17 to, to now in terms of devices, in terms of, you know, broadband capabilities, in terms of 3G, 4G, 5G. I think, um, you know, it, it, things move on. Uh, and we've certainly seen that movement in, in terms of online casino. Um, there's healthy competition between us and other operators. And, you know, we, I certainly regularly talk to my counterparts at different operators. I think it's quite a healthy thing to do, but it is, you know, at the end of the day, there's only so many people in so many states in terms of population who are of the legal age to, um, you know, enjoy our services. And I think we just have to, every operator needs to be smarter in terms of content and offers and you know communication and frequency and things like that customers um you know certainly in the states where we have land-based presence and we can directly link it back it, it it certainly helps us but it's it's tough i mean i think there's three or four more operators launching in new jersey soon that's you know that increases the pool um you know, makes things makes things more competitive. Um, I think competition will always be there. To be honest with you, it's 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 those who continue to surprise and delight their customers that will win out. So I want to get your thoughts on uh, online poker. Um, as sure. regular listeners uh, know, I was a poker journalist and recreational poker player long before I got into covering the other corners of the gambling universe. Um, now, online poker doesn't bring in nearly the revenue that online casino does, mm. um, but the action could pick up a bit with more interstate compacts forming. How important is that to the future of, of iPoker, the opportunity to combine player pools across state lines? Look, super important to me. It has to happen. Um, you know, I think, like you, I don't think there's there's as much poker action as there should be at this point in time. But I think pooling liquidity across state lines where we can um, it is just 100% important to the game. I think, um, you know, it's certainly part of our ethos and, and, and what we need to do. You know, you've probably seen recently we're, Working with brand investors like Darren Alliance, we've just hired a new poker director from um, Stars, uh, Luke Stordemeyer. We're just about to do our Tornia Aria. These are all new things for us uh, as a business in terms of our, our, our poker team. But it, um, you know, it, without that liquidity sharing piece, it's I don't think we're just going to grow the market. And I think that's important to both 
you know, Earth Stars and and WSOP. So, I mean, in in Michigan, we just got the news that they they are joining some interstate compacts. Yeah. But meanwhile, the the state that I live in here in Pennsylvania, for whatever reason, feet have been dragging. It, has there been any conversation between the operators like BetMGM and 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 the regulators in Pennsylvania about? Pennsylvania joining those compacts, or are you hearing anything indicating it's going to happen soon? A hundred percent, and conversations continue all the time. Um, you know, and I'm I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful we will get there. I think it's for the benefit of the good from everyone who's in the poker business, and more importantly, the players. At the end of the day, that's that's who wants service. I don't think about it as just BetMGM. It's you know the. I, I, there is more scope in online poker in the US to get back to the heady days of pre-2006. And I think, you know, with, with regulator help and, um, you know, easy in terms of sharing liquidity and state compacts, we, we will get there and provide collectively, um, you know, great player experiences. So, yeah, it's, it, it's top, of our, our, top of our poker strategy for the time being, to be honest with you, to get that done. Gotcha. Yeah, you know, Matt in New Jersey when they release the monthly figures, they list peer to peer, which is online poker, and it's maybe yeah. two point two million, right? And everything else is other, one hundred and forty million or whatever. That's big other. And uh, so I'm really curious. To, I haven't really asked anybody before. I don't think about what the breakdown really is. My impression is first that slots are probably the biggest, but you can let me know. And then out of um, blackjack, roulette, craps and baccarat, which are kind of well known, uh, maybe Pikeau, uh casino games are any of those more or less popular online than they are in real life and and which are the overall top games that people like to play online i, th- I think it's no no surprise look in, in terms of revenue breakdown slots make up about 60 percent of our revenue in nj i think you probably get that from every other operator um in terms of tables it's about 20 rng tables anyway and it's it's led by it's led by blackjack above, you know, baccarat or craps or things like that. And then, um, you know, 15% live dealer, uh, which, you know, we, we don't tend to lump into RNG and then about 5% on, you know, sort of instant win games, slingo games, those sort of things. Um, but it's, it, you know, it, it's slightly different per state to be honest with you, but you know, blackjack is still the leading table game in, in, in NJ. In terms of slots, it's um, got some really interesting companies who are really rising up the ranks very quickly. Uh, there's a there's a great slots company called DGC who have done wonders in New Jersey. Um, you know, we obviously our games that we launched over, over nearly two years ago now, like MGM Grand Millions, are you know still in the top three in terms of slots. They're obviously resonating with our customer base and how we promote them. And then you'll still see your old favorite floor fillers from IGT, you know, Da Vinci Diamonds, um, 88 Fortunes, as I've referenced before from Williams. Uh, It's a real mix. What I will say is in Jersey, customers are, because obviously they've had access to online casino for a a lot longer. They're a lot more savvy. Um, I always talk to customers when I can and it's sort of, they will tell you more about games that they love to play and what we're missing and in terms of our promotions. And I kind of love that. It's very different from, very different from uh, Europe, if, if that makes sense. 
Um, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering about yeah. you know, the youngest people. I mean, if you walk a casino floor, you know, I notice I'm looking for a 20 something uh, at the slot machine area that they don't they don't like. I think it's because the bells and whistles to them, it's like black and white noise, you know, based on what they've grown up with, with video games and everything else. Like I, I my line is that if you set up a slots area at a casino to dazzle uh millennials or gen y or whatever it would cause seizures among people over 60 so because they'd be too overwhelmed by the the how bright the lights were and all that so uh but i'm curious do younger people play online slots more than they play real slots or do they prefer other games or um look they're not in our massive demographic for online slots today they they still play obviously um i think you know there's more uh, online blackjack um, and and you'll certainly see that on the property floor as well. Well, in, 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 in NJ, you know these sort of uh, weekend breakers and things like that. There's kind of more. There's some interesting concepts coming out there in terms of what what these types of players want as they sort of emerge and they're kind of new and, and younger. You know, they want more. Um, you know, crowdfunding jackpots and things on blackjack games where everyone could, or you could choose to share. If you win a jackpot, you could choose to share fifty percent of it with everyone else who's playing. That sort of um, mm. that sort of thing, or, or or games that give you access to, you know, maybe the nightclub at Borgata in a VIP area, or that, that those sort of more experiential things, but uh, a lot sort of um, faster rather than this, you know, you, you against the machine. They, they they sort of like these social experiences. I've just done this and I've won this, and I'm going to share it with these people are, we're going to go and do this type of thing now. So that's the real sort of content we're looking at, um, looking at the moment in terms of how we innovate. There's a a really fun game actually, which is, um, I don't know whether you've ever seen it. It's a game by Aruze. It's called Go Go Claw. And it is basically one of those claw machine games where you dunk it and pick something, but it's a slot machine, but it looks, it, it, it looks like it has an element of skill, which it doesn't really. And those sort of um, those sort of new fun games are really appealing to that type of audience from a, a, a land-based perspective. It's whether we can translate that into, um, you know, a, a, a sort of online experience or not. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's more innovation that's needed in the online gaming sector uh, uh, as a whole, and it, it will it will take time, but we will get there. Interesting. And uh, you mentioning the, uh, the the nightclub at Borgata VIP experience that is uh, just right up me and John's alleys here. That is, that is basically you, you've nailed exactly what would uh, what would reel us Listen, in is the opportunity. If, if, look, yeah. Whenever you whenever you guys want some tickets, absolutely, I'll take you. I don't. Um, the last time I was in there, I felt so old. I sort of had to leave after about 20 minutes. But right. um is, is, is there a morning shift? Can I get like 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. or something like that at the nightclub? The people are still there. It's late for them. They haven't, right. They haven't they might yet. still be there. Yeah. I, think, I think the morning shift's like 11 p.m. That's it. That right. Yeah. No, that's, so, yeah. that's after we, my bedtime. We, we, we can go and do that and sit in the VIP area with no one else in there. That'd be quite fun. There you go. I'm I'm in for that. Well, it's been great. It's been great talking to you, Matt. Uh, congratulations on all of uh, BetMGM's success and uh, awards. Thank and, you. Uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Well, thank you to you two as well. It's great to meet you both. And um, yeah, anytime. I've loved it. It's been fun. Thanks, Matt. Two men. Two men. Ten thousand dollars.
Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On Bankroll. Let's update our betting bankroll. And we had us a winning week, John. Uh, Not by much and not in terms of bet count as five of our seven new bets lost. But the bigger ones won. We came out a little ahead and we'll take it any way we can get it. Uh, First, the smaller sized bets that lost. The PGA Championship was not kind to us uh, as you went heavy on Patrick Cantlay, who missed the cut. We lost bets of $20, $40, and $40 on him. And you also took a $10 stab with Shane Lowry to win the tournament. We also lost on my boxing bet. I had Benavidez in rounds 7 through 12. I didn't get much of a sweat. Benavidez scored the KO midway through round 3. So those bets added up to $170 in losses. Now the wins. You had the Philadelphia Stars to cover as three-point underdogs, and they won outright, 35 to 28 winning us $100 and also helping our chances on your star's future bet. And I dodged a bad beat with my Jimmy Butler over 26 and a half points bet for game two. It was a total blowout and he only played three quarters, but he got there anyway with 29 points and then had knee inflammation the next game and only played half of it and has gone under in games three, four and five. So we got a little lucky to back Butler in this particular game that we did. So that won us another hundred dollars. We profited $30 overall on the week. So we're now down $3,502. We still have $785 on hold in futures bets, leaving us with $5,713 available to bet with this week. And you're up first, John. Yeah, you know, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, said Alexander Pope in an 18th century poem. They remarkably also contained the phrases, to err is human, to forgive divine, and for fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Hmm. All three really apply to the fact that I learned last Wednesday that all five of Patrick Cantley's conventional PGA Tour wins came on bent grass greens, as was the case at the PGA Championship in Tulsa over the weekend. Same turf. You know what else is good to remember? Patrick Cantley sucks in majors, and he missed a cut by seven <laughs> shots. But moving on to the Colonial in Dallas, uh, I slink back to my top 20 efforts, and I'm amazed to see a pair of names at minus 110 to finish top 20. Victor Hovland and Will Zalatoris, two of my favorites. This par 70 suits both of their games really well. And while Zalatoris is coming off a disappointing playoff loss to the PGA, this is home turf for the Texan, and his game is completely on point. Now, Hovland is Norwegian, but he attended Oklahoma State and thus knows sort of the lay of the land in this area. No top 20s on MGM this week, so either or both of these could get chopped to pieces with, say, a 10-way tie for 18th finish. But I'll take my chances at a field of just 120 players. So 55 to win 50 on each stud. Okay. Um, I'm going to place another NBA single-game bet. Uh, They've been working out fairly well for us. Uh, Tonight, Mm -hmm. Thursday night, Warriors-Mavs game five. The Mavs avoided the sweep by winning game four. And they are the kind of frisky team that you can't totally 100% rule out doing the crazy rally back from down 3-0. But logically, it feels like the Warriors close it out here at home where they're 8-0 in the postseason. And this has been a dreadful playoffs, especially these last two rounds. It seems like every game is a blowout in one direction or the other. There's always some team going like five for 30 on three pointers and getting smoked. The Mavericks haven't had a single game finish with a margin of victory or defeat inside nine points since the first game of the second round against the Phoenix Suns. So there's reason to believe in a blowout and logic dictates the Warriors are much more likely to win in a blowout. Golden State is favored by seven at most books. So I'm looking at some adjusted lines here. I could see a case for going real big, like Warriors to win by 
15 or more, but that's obviously risky. So what about Warriors minus eight and a half? Since I noted that Dallas hasn't had a game finish under nine in a while. BetMGM has Golden State minus eight and a half at plus 125. That's the best price I found. Uh, shout out to our guest this week, Matt from BetMGM. Let's bet this one at their book. Uh, and so instead of 110 to win 100 at minus seven, we're going 100 to win 125 on an adjusted line of minus eight and a half. All right. And let's go back to the USFL. Uh, we're six games through the 10 game season of contests that all games are played in Birmingham, Alabama. Yes, that is weird, but financially wise, it probably is. So there's a six and now a five and one, a four and two, a pair of three and threes and three, one and five so far. Mm-hmm. The gamblers in the tougher South division could be eliminated this week, actually. But I see the Tampa Bay Bandits are paper tigers with all three of their wins against those one and five teams, including mm-hmm. a one point win over the gamblers. The New Jersey Generals, meanwhile, have won five straight. So I'll gladly go 110 to win 100 with the Generals, giving only four points to the Bandits. Okay. New Jersey Generals. I guess I got a root for them this week. <laughs> um, we've said it a, a few times that one of the best bargains in futures betting is on NFL season-long player prop unders, that there are lots of paths to the under and usually only one or two paths to the over. The full menu isn't out yet, but some books are putting out yardage props on a few players. And I found one that I like. Washington running back Antonio Gibson points bet randomly has a prop for him listed, but for hardly any other players, um, they have his line at 974 and a half rushing yards with minus 130 juice on the under Uh, reports out of Washington have them planning to put Gibson in a timeshare and do a Mm -hmm. a three headed running back monster with Mm -hmm. JD McKissick and third round draft pick, Brian Robinson, Jr. Mm -hmm. So Gibson probably won't be a full on workhorse back. Running back injuries are very common, of course. And Carson Wentz at quarterback, who knows where that goes, but game plans for him tend to include a lot of dump offs. I wouldn't expect the commanders to be playing with big leads all that often either. Um, you know, like Gibson could have a, a decent total in terms of all purpose yards, do a lot of receiving on dump offs, but he seems to me a long shot to go over on the rushing yards. So while I wish it was minus 110 and not minus 130, you know, I guess the value hunters have already jumped on it and moved the line. I still think it's a winning bet. And, uh, you know, for a season long sweat, I like to have a little extra skin in the game. So let's go $195 to win 150 Gibson under 974 and a half rushing yards. Yeah. The thing is that Gibson's a tough guy, but he gets hurt a lot. He gets knocked out of games a lot. So, you know, as you found last year with one of your wide receiver bets, you know, God forbid he misses two games, but well, we won't say that in this case. Right. All right. And that will do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Matt Sunderland. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else. And with that, John, please take us out. I don't tend to mention my weekly golf pool picks because, well, nobody cares. I know because I don't care about anybody's fantasy football team either. And not just because I've never played fantasy football, but something absurd happened this weekend. So I think uh, you can indulge me. So for the PGA Championship, I picked Patrick Cantley for the reasons cited above. I also took Scotty Scheffler, who missed the cut. But when the runaway leader in our pool can't take Scheffler in the pool for any of these last 12 weeks, it's a mandatory pick. So no regrets. And I chose John Rahm, who barely made the cut. So that didn't work. The interesting part, perhaps, when I saw the list of picks on Thursday morning, I thought there was a mistake. I was sure I had subbed out Justin Thomas for Jordan Spieth as my fourth pick at the last minute. But I checked the email I sent and nope, my official pick had Thomas, not Spieth. 
Well, I hope maybe I'd luck out. And clearly I did since Spieth finished 35th. But Thomas was something like eight shots off the lead with maybe 10 holes to play. So, you know, maybe it only got a little lucky. And then everybody had a Thomas, none of whom had won a PGA Tour event before, fell down. And Thomas wins the damn thing in a playoff. So had my actual intended pick been sent, I'd have slid from 11th place to 14th place, also known as last place, where I've never spent a day in seven and a half years in this pool. Instead, hey, 2.7 million for the Thomas win. <laughs> oh wait, we doubled the money for the majors, 5.4 million. 14th place, try fourth place, wow. as none of the top nine in the standings had Thomas. As Bob Dylan once wrote, I can't help it if I'm lucky. <laughs> and with that good beat, until next time, gamble on everybody.